And I'd like to read Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Galatians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for the truth of the promises in your word, for the knowledge that the great gratuitous evil and suffering of this present age, this present evil age, are not even worth comparing with the eternal weight of glory that awaits those who are in Christ. Lord, there are times when we see that only through the eyes of faith because everything we're looking at in the world is screaming the opposite. This week has, has sort of been one of those weeks in a lot of ways. And so, Father, I pray that as we examine your word, you would... Show your goodness and your mercy and your loyal love. And you would enable us to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Who didn't just give us an explanation for evil. Who didn't just put his arm around us and comfort us. But who gave himself. Who actually went to the cross who took the curse of death in his own body and not because he was compelled by how amazingly righteous we were, but he did it for our sins. So, Father, I pray that you would just cause that truth to fall on us and, and, and wash over us this morning. We need it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On October 31st, 1517, a professor of religion by the name of Martin Luther did something relatively normal. 
he published a list of debate topics to a kind of public bulletin board, the front door of the church where he taught biblical studies for the classes, uh, uh, classes for the, the University of Wittenberg in Germany. That's what academics do. They debate things in writing and in person, and they publish their thoughts for the very small collection of colleagues who actually have both the leisure and the patience to actually care about the conversation. That's normal. And as mundane as it must have seemed at the time, this simple act set off one of the most important series of events to occur in many centuries. The posting of these 95 theses became a seed for what would later become the Protestant Reformation. The impact of this one event is incalculable. Uh, Whole nations were transformed. The entirety of Christendom itself from the radical Anabaptist denominations to the Protestant denominations that would spring up in the uh, ensuing years, even to the, the behemoth of the Roman Catholic Church itself through a process of vigorous counter-reformation was all transformed in just a matter of a few years. But what you might not know is that Martin Luther's personal conversion didn't take place until years later. Now, it's somewhat a matter of debate, but by Luther's own account, his personal transformation, his uh, experience of the new birth affected by an encounter with the real gospel, came while wrestling with the writings of the Apostle Paul, not in 1517, uh, but in 1519, two years after he nailed the 95 Theses to the door. He says, quote, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners, and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God, And said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law without having God add pain to pain by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith, the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Now, as glorious as that is, what Luther describes is a time in the church's history when the very preaching of the gospel, so-called, had become so distorted, so infected with the demands of the law, and so tyrannical in its demands that men earned their way to God, that even the most devoted students of the Bible could not discern any grace, any forgiveness, any hope when encountering God in the pages of Scripture. Praise God that Martin Luther was pulled away from that. But the sad truth is that more than once the world was this close to losing its most precious treasure, the preaching of the grace of God in the cross of Christ. It almost happened in Luther's day. It almost happened in the early church in the fourth century. 
uh, and it, according to the letter that we're going to be studying over the next few months, Paul's letter to the Galatians, just decades after the resurrection of Jesus, even some of the apostles themselves were they were so close to stumbling in their commitment to the pure and unadulterated message of the gospel. Now listen, if the priests in the Middle Ages can give themselves to the study of the Bible and miss the gospel, if the persecuted pastors bearing the scars of torture in the 4th century can miss the gospel, if the pillars of the church themselves, these apostles who walked with Jesus, who learned at his feet, who ate meals with him, can have nearly let the gospel slip away, then how much more vigilant ought we be today? How diligent must we be to treasure this message, to explore its depths, to vigorously root out its counterfeits, and to ensure that what we say about Jesus is the pure, pristine truth of the message of the cross that's presented in the, in the New Testament instead of a gospel distorted, as it were, by like a funhouse mirror in a carnival, a mock gospel, a fake gospel, a damning gospel. This is why I'm eager to study Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now, we're going to talk more about this person, the Apostle Paul, in coming weeks. But for now, let me just simply make the observation that this document that you have in front of you is authenticated by his own hand. It is not a dusty systematic distillation of the teachings of the early church stored away for scholars. No, it is an urgently composed emergency plea sent out before the ink had dried to stop a cluster of churches from tumbling headlong into the fires of hell itself. You sit down, you read the whole thing, and it would take you less than an hour. You'll see. This letter is white hot with desperate urgency for the souls of those he had labored to win just a short time before. Now this morning, I want us to examine the sort of the introduction to this letter in verses 1 through 10. Uh, the section is broken down into two parts. Uh, verses 1 through 5 make up the, what, you, what you might call the salutation, the greeting of the letter. Uh, Paul opens the letter in just the same way anyone else in antiquity might have begun a letter, but then he kind of takes some of the elements that you'd normally expect and he expands on them, and in those expansions we're going to find some themes that he'll pick up on in the rest of the letter, themes that we need to understand. And then in the second section, in verses 6 through 10, Paul lays out the problem that he wishes to address in the rest of the letter. And so for that reason, because the passage has two parts, this sermon's going to have two parts. Uh, we're going to learn about the gospel itself in verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to learn about its counterfeits in verses 6 through 10. So consider with me in the first place the gospel, the gospel. Notice that in the salutation, these first five verses... There are three elements that you might normally expect when reading an ancient letter. Uh, nowadays, when we write letters, what, what do we do? We say, dear so-and-so, or to whom it may concern, then we do the body, and then, you know, and the, the address and the recipient information, that might be somewhere on, on the envelope or the stationery, and, and we have these conventions that we follow, and in the ancient world, they had normal ways of doing this as well, and Paul follows those normal conventions. He begins by stating his own name alongside those who are co-signing the letter with him. And then he states the letter's recipients, these churches of Galatia. These are the churches that Paul had actually helped to start on his first missionary journey, recorded for us in the book of Acts. 
And then thirdly, you, you normally see a greeting or well wishes of, of some kind. Jake to Sam, I hope you're doing okay. And then on with the letter. And, and Paul follows that convention, but instead of this well wishing, he, he actually expresses these wishes in, in terms of a prayer to the Lord. And notice that he kind of expands on the first and third elements. He has more to say about himself than just his name or title. And then his prayer is sort of expanded as well. And it's in these expansions we find some of the themes he wants to emphasize throughout the rest of the letter. So let's just glean some of the principles uh, that we can find in these few words uh, that are going to be expanded on in the rest of the letter. Uh, What is the gospel? What is it that he's preaching? What is so important to Paul? Three things about the gospel. First of all, the gospel is divine in its origin. It's divine in its origin. Notice verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not for men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Think about this with me. No one, apart from Jesus had a more foundational, excuse me, a more foundational role in the formation of Christianity than the man that is writing this letter, the Apostle Paul. And yet when he describes himself, he doesn't use the kind of terminology you might expect. Paul is not a sage. He's not a teacher. He's not a master. He's not an expert. He hasn't arrived at his doctrinal point of view through years of meditation or quiet reflection. He's not a guru whose wisdom is just exceptionally deep. How does he describe himself? He says, Paul, an apostle. You say, what's that? Literally, uh, an an apostle is someone who's sent to do something by somebody else. That's what an apostle is. In the New Testament, it often refers to a small group of men who were specifically chosen and sent out by Jesus. Jesus told the 12 when he was, uh, you know, before his death on the cross, he said, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And an apostle was a person with no authority in and of himself, but total authority to act on behalf of the person who had sent him. It's like when an ambassador of the United States goes to another country and he's kind of acting in his official capacity in that nation as the ambassador of the United States. He has the authority of the United States behind him as he represents our nation. This is sort of what it's like to be an apostle. You don't have any authority in and of yourself, but that authority of the one who sent you kind of flows through you. This is the nature of Paul's ministry. It's his favorite way of referring to himself. And notice what he emphasizes. He is not an apostle of men or through uh, through a man. He, He didn't learn his message from another man. He's an apostle of the Lord Jesus. It was Jesus who sent him. His message is divine in its origin. Notice as well how that message is certified as true. God raised Jesus from the dead. So think about this with me. It's Paul's charisma, his ability to draw a crowd or to spin a yarn or to inspire the masses was not the source or the origin of the influence that Paul had over the churches of Galatia. He didn't make up anything that he was saying. He didn't hear about it from someone else. He got it directly from the Lord, and the confirmation of that message and that mission is not how good it makes us feel. It's not that I sense that the the Spirit's moving when you're talking, as, as wonderful as those things are. No, what confirms that Paul's message comes from the Lord? He raised Jesus from the dead. 
He's saying the way you know that this is true is not because of what I did. It's because of something God did. He actually, in real time and real space, raised Jesus from the dead. That changes everything. So often we talk about the truth of the gospel as if it were sort of in a different category of truth from everyday truth. Like, yeah, there's one plus one equals two. That's true. We all have to agree on that. But then your beliefs about the Lord Jesus Christ, that's sort of in a different category. And what Paul is saying is, no, no, no. This message is, it's based on a historical event. And so it's not just true for me and not true for somebody else. It's based on reality. This message came from the Lord. The gospel is divine in its origin. Secondly, the gospel is divine in its energy. It's divine in its energy. Look at verses 3 and 4. The power driving the ministry of the gospel is not something men have done, nor is it anything that you can do. It's the work of God. Look at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Now, in antiquity, in a typical Greek letter, uh, the author would begin by stating his name, the name of the recipient, and then he, as I said, he would, he would offer some kind of greetings or uh, well wishes, uh, and the word that, that was often used was the word kyrene, greetings. Uh, Paul changes that word to charis, grace. In a typical Jewish letter, the author would begin with peace, shalom, and, and Paul kind of combines both, grace and peace. He's going to be really hard on these Galatian believers, but his sincere desire is that they experience the grace of the Lord and his peace, his wholeness, his, his goodness. And then he goes into what, what is most likely, think about this, what is most likely the earliest written expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ still in existence today. Think about that. You might not realize this because of the way our New Testament is arranged. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, etc. And it, it may seem as though Matthew was probably written first, but that's not the case. Galatians, most likely, uh, was the first of Paul's letters to be written and, and published and sent out to the world. And uh, there are earlier letters. James, for example, is probably earlier. But here's, here's the first written expression of the gospel still in existence today. How do believers experience the grace and peace of Christ? Through human effort and obedience, through keeping the law? No. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Did you know that the age in which we are living, the present age, is evil? I mean, I don't really have to convince you, do I? How much death and suffering have we had to witness even just this week? It's like we're being drowned in it. And I'm just talking about the stuff that makes the news. I'm not even talking about the stuff that you personally are dealing with this week that nobody else might know about. The Bible is clear on this. And our experience bears it out that our age, our epic is an evil age. For centuries, we've had access to God's divine laws. We have known what he expects, 
and yet we have broken the covenant of our God and the legal judgments against us are just piling up in reams and the burden of guilt and shame is weighing us down and we are assaulting constantly the way that God has created this universe to to operate and it's unraveling at the seams. We live in the present evil age. The age Paul is talking about is the period of time in which human beings exist under the judgment of God. We are under a curse. Ever since Adam broke the commandment, we have existed under doom, under that sentence of death, and the evil is just marching on. And the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus, according to the will of God the Father, wanted to rescue us from this present evil age. He wants us to be citizens of a new era, a new creation, freed from the rotting stench of sin. And so how does he do that? Does he give us more clear and more specific commands? Does he double down on the demands of the law? Does he burn up the ultra-wicked and leave the somewhat innocent people left so that we can start over? No. Because that wouldn't be good news at all. It would be despair. That would be like... uh, Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. You remember the story of Pilgrim's Progress? He carried around this burden and he told the people that he met that I I feel like the burden of my sin is going to drag me down to hell itself. And so how does Jesus rescue us from the present evil age? He gave himself for our sins. Now, I don't have the skill to help you really feel the unique impact of this reality. I wish I could help you feel that on this normal day, in this normal room, while you sit there and your mind drifts and you've got a bunch of other things on your, on your plate and, and, and you're paying attention to all those things and you feel like you've heard it all before, the Son of God who made the world who deserves all the praise and all the glory of all sentient beings ever to exist the one who is more wealthy and more important than any other being in the universe ever to exist, didn't just give a little bit. He gave himself for us, for our sins. I mean, I've heard of people laying down their life for someone that they really care about. A mother risks her life for a child. That's newsworthy, but it's not unheard of. I've heard of rich people giving their money for the good of the world, you know, spending millions to dig wells in a poor country or to fund medical research. You know, I, may, I might be the only one in this room that thinks this way. I don't think I am. It's kind of immature and almost embarrassing. But when I think about the super rich people in the world, which I don't do very often, but sometimes I do, I've sometimes had the thought, you know, a Tesla costs like $50,000, right? I can't really afford that. But Elon Musk has billions of dollars. If he just gave me one of those Teslas, (laughs) he wouldn't even know, you know, that it's missing. Like, he wouldn't feel that at all. Like, Am I the only one that thinks this way? I sometimes think this way. I will admit it. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, listen, he is way richer, way more important than Elon Musk. But he didn't just give me a Tesla. He didn't give me a yacht. He didn't give me a college education or a new house. He gave himself. And not because I deserved it. Not because he heard about my story and he was like, man, that's a real tearjerker. I'm going to give myself for that guy. He gave himself for my sin. 
say, okay, well, what, okay, great. What do I need to do? You don't do anything. <laughs> he gave himself. It's already done. There's nothing left to do. So I'm, I'm just not sure what I think about going to church. Okay, you can worry about that later. Well, which denomination? Who cares about that? He gave himself for you, for your sin. That's the thing you got to focus on first. Because through this gift of himself, Jesus is the only one who can rescue us from this present evil age. Everything that's true about the period of time that we're living in cannot hurt us anymore. Not ultimately, not finally, because he gave himself for our sins. The curse hanging over the world cannot touch us. The demands of the law that sentence us to death have been voided. We are rescued from this present evil age through the gift of Jesus himself. And this was God's plan all along. It's according to the will of God. Which means that from the very conception of the idea to the arrival of Jesus into the world, to the fulfillment of the law's demands, to the death of Christ that paid for its curse, to the resurrection of Jesus that completed the death of death itself. From start to finish, not a single part of our rescue from this present evil age was the work of human beings. It was all God. Every single piece of it was all God. It's divine in its energy. Thirdly, the gospel is divine in its end. It's divine in its end, its goal. Look at verse 5. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. There is a reason God is doing this. There's a point to the gospel message. It's not to trick people into emptying their pocketbooks. It's not to lull the masses into accepting tyranny as the status quo. It's, not, it's, it's so that over and over again, the glory of God would be seen and would be enjoyed by every sentient creature from the highest angel to the simplest child. It is all about God. You say, Jake, I want to make sure I'm hearing the real gospel. How do I know I'm hearing the real gospel? Well, these verses give us sort of a test, don't they? I mean, are you hearing a message that comes from God? Or some cool insight that some guy thought of that you never heard before? Are you being told about what God has done? Or are you hearing a bunch of stuff that you have to do? Are you hearing a message that makes you think about the awesomeness and the glory and the greatness and the goodness of God? Or are you thinking about how awesome and great the preacher is? The gospel is divine from start to finish. It is from God, it is through God, it is for God. And if we would just remember this simple truth, it would immediately expose the difference between the real gospel and all these other gospel knockoffs out there. You hear someone speaking a, a gospel message that no other Christian has ever thought of before, you can take it to the bank. You're hearing a message that doesn't come from God because it's not divine in its origin came from the creative processes of that person's mind. Easy, false gospel. You hear somebody speaking and all they ever focus on is what you need to do. Ten things to do to have a better marriage. Five ways to improve your finances. L listen, in all due respect, you might be hearing good advice, good counsel. Maybe it's worth listening to, but it's not the gospel. Do this, do that. 
You turn on the TV or scroll through social media or visit a bookstore and you see this so-called preacher of the gospel exalting himself, pointing you to himself, making it all about him or her. You can just take it to the bank. That person is not preaching the gospel. Because the real gospel came from God, it's based on God's work, and it's all for the glory of God. Now, all these things, Paul just sort of hints at, and he's going to drill down into each one of these themes throughout the rest of the letter. So that's an area of focus in in verses 1 through 5, the gospel. But notice with me in verses 6 through 10, he moves very quickly to a stern warning about the gospel's counterfeits. It's counterfeits. I'm astonished, Paul says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. They were in danger of embracing a counterfeit, a fake. And we can glean three features of these counterfeit gospels in verses 6 through 10. And again, each one of these he's just going to touch on briefly, but we're going to drill down into them more as we go through the letter. First characteristic of these counterfeit gospels from verses 6 and 7 They are parasitical. They are parasitical. They are parasites on the real gospel. Look at verse 7. He says, it's not that there is another gospel. There's really only one real gospel. There are no others. There's not door number one and door number two, and you can pick whichever one you want to go through. It's not, oh, if you don't like Jesus, you can go through through the door of, uh, of the gospel that Muhammad preaches or the gospel of accumulating wealth or the gospel of spirituality and, like, crystals and stuff like that. No. There's only one. So how have they turned to a different gospel if there's only one gospel? Well, someone came along, they took the real gospel, and they twisted it. And, and this, this is what you need to know. To one degree or another, all these false gospels are really distortions of the real gospel. Every single one. They aren't manufactured out of thin air. They tear off a little bit of truth, and they twist it into a lie. This is what we're going to learn about the Galatian believers. Obviously, the things that they dealt with are unique to their time and place and context. The false teachers were saying, basically, that you had to become a Jew in order to benefit from the work of Christ on the cross. Now, I haven't heard that in Mineral Wells. Maybe you have heard that. I haven't heard that. So that's unique to them. And there was a lot of truth mixed into that message. They were talking about Jesus. They were talking about Jesus' death. They were talking about Jesus' resurrection. But those truths were distorted by this funhouse mirror of the works of the law. And and we'll see more about this in the coming weeks. And the point is that just because someone is talking about Jesus-y things doesn't mean that they're preaching the gospel. We need to be on guard. I, I am shocked, often shocked, by the lack of vigilance that we have in this area. I mean, don't you know how Satan works? He tries to trick. He tries to deceive. He, he didn't go, do you remember in the garden, Genesis chapter 3? He didn't say to Eve, Eve, let's be evil, right? No. He twisted the word of God. And he does the same thing with the gospel. He doesn't say, hey, reject the gospel and suffer in hell forever. Come on. No. He twists it. He makes it sound good. He makes it sound plausible. He distracts and he deceives. Counterfeit money only works if it looks like the real thing. 
There's no point in wearing a fake Rolex unless it looks like a real Rolex. And if that's true with a $100 bill or with a $2,000 watch, how much more is that the case when we're talking about the priceless treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I don't mean to be unkind. Just because your uncle or your neighbor who happens to be a Roman Catholic seems to have a vibrant, genuine relationship with the Lord doesn't mean, listen to me, it doesn't mean that the gospel he's hearing from that priest or, or, or a pastor is the gospel that's in the New Testament. Just because your Mormon coworker says he loves Jesus doesn't mean that the so-called Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is preaching anything even close to the real gospel. Just because your granddaughter attends a church that says it's Baptist or evangelical and, and maybe sings some of the same songs that you sing here at Indian Creek doesn't necessarily mean that she's getting the same gospel that we find in the Bible. You say, why are you being like that? Why are you calling people out like that? Why would you say that? Because every false gospel dresses up like the real thing. And we've got to be vigilant. We've got to be on guard. Sincere people who have had profound experiences will try to convince you that the message they're proclaiming is the message of Jesus, while in many cases it is absolutely not the message of Jesus. We have to keep going back to the scriptures because the most dangerous false gospels are the ones that trick us into thinking they are real. Be on guard. The gospel's counterfeits are, first of all, parasitical. Secondly, they are deadly. They're deadly. Twice in verses 8 and 9, Paul says that a person who preaches a false gospel, a person who twists the message of Jesus, must be accursed. Let me explain what that means. He's not just flying off the handle and and losing his temper and uttering a four-letter word. He's talking about eternal damnation. And he says it twice. Anybody who preaches a fake gospel is in danger of being damned. And why? Because their gospel is a deadly gospel. It sends people to hell. When I was young, I remember hearing my dad share the gospel with my older sister. And even at the age of four and a half, I remember this. I remember thinking, this is life and death. If I died tonight, I have no reason to think I would spend eternity with God. I was terrified. I hear people talk nowadays, and uh, it's like, I don't know about the gospel. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. One day, maybe I'll decide what I think. But for now, you know, I've got to watch the game, and I've got to do this, and I've got to watch the car. And it's like, this is life and death. You've (laughs) You've got to get it nailed down. I mean, what do you think is going to happen if you leave here and you get in the car and you drive 70 miles an hour down 180 and a drunk driver careens into you and you enter eternity? You're not guaranteed another minute of life. And then what? Say, well, God wouldn't just send me to hell. You think Christians are arrogant. And conceited. How conceited do you have to be to think that the God of the universe owes you heaven because of the way that you've lived? Eternal bliss? For what? What did you do to deserve that? What did any of us do to deserve that? 
Listen, if you die and you're not right with God, that's it. It doesn't matter if you think God is too nice to send people to hell. By the way, Jesus disagreed. Jesus was the most fire and brimstone preacher in all of the pages of scripture. He talked about hell constantly, and he didn't take a poll to ask whether you were comfortable with that or not. If you don't like that, or if you think that's mean, it doesn't matter if you think it's mean. What matters is, is it true? You are not God's judge. God is your judge. If you don't have Jesus, you're already condemned. You're already on death row. I'm talking about your eternal soul. There is no getting out of it. There is no excusing it. There is no escaping it. You are already cursed. Your sentence is already passed. There's no hope for you. But the good news is that he gave himself for our sins. God had the idea. Jesus did the work. The Spirit applies it to our hearts when we hear the gospel. I didn't do anything to deserve it. I don't do anything to earn it. I just call out to Jesus and say, Jesus, me too. Jesus, save me. And Paul's saying that if somebody comes along and messes with that message, they can go ahead and be eternally condemned themselves. Because what they're doing is they are destroying everlasting souls. By the way, just as an aside, notice how the authority of the gospel message doesn't originate in the person preaching the message. Paul's going to talk about his own authority as an apostle in this book, but he says, even if it's an apostle, even if it's an angel from heaven that comes to you and preaches a different message from the one that you receive, let him be accursed. I don't care who you heard it from. If you hear a message that contradicts the gospel of Jesus, don't believe it for a second because that distortion is deadly. These counterfeit gospels are parasitical. They are deadly. But in the third place, notice with me, they are seductive. They're seductive. Uh, Verse 10. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be the servant of Christ. Now, this verse is sort of transitional. In the next section, he's going to talk about Uh, how the gospel he preaches didn't come from man, that he didn't check with anybody when he was preaching the gospel because he learned it directly from Christ. But notice what this implies. Apparently these people who were troubling the Galatian believers had made an accusation. Paul's gospel, here's what they were saying. Paul's gospel is designed to be popular among the Gentiles, because what he's doing is he's going out there and saying, you don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to keep the law. You don't have to accept circumcision, right? That's pretty popular. So he must be doing it because he wants to be popular with the Gentiles. And Paul's having to say, actually, if I really wanted to please men, the last thing I would do is preach the gospel. In fact, as he'll reveal later on in the letter, it was actually the message of his opponents that was designed to maximize their wealth and their popularity. They wanted to be able to boast in your flesh. Now, we'll get into that more later. But for now, suffice it to say that there are powerful motivations for preachers to preach a false gospel. One of those motivations is popularity and the fear of man. Peter himself is going to fall prey to this. He lives in step with the gospel. He eats meals with Gentile Christians, but then his friends show up, the people that he probably grew up with. And they, don't, they look at him and they say, oh, you're going to eat with them? And he gets afraid. 
and he changes his behavior because he's afraid of what men would say about him. Now, I can tell you from experience, it is hard to preach a gospel that is unpopular with the world, but it is so painful to preach the truth when you think that your friends or your family or your church family is going to disapprove. That's what the apostles had to do. Imagine getting up in front of the synagogue and you look out and all these people who you grew up knowing, people who are part of your family, people who had mentored you and taught you, and you're having to say to them, brothers, the way that you're living, keeping the law, it's not necessary to be in Christ. It's a free gift. Christ has fulfilled the law's demands. Christ has abolished the law's curse. Those who believe in Jesus are Abraham's true children. Can you imagine the hatred and the rejection and the, the, just the looks that they might have received from their friends and family? In this environment, there was this strong pull to make the message more palatable to the religiously devout. And in the process, the gospel itself was being skewed and twisted. Here's the point. There is such a strong motivation to take the true message of the cross and bend it to conform to popular opinion. And when we do that, the result is damning. This morning, I wonder if it's more important to you to please men than it is to please God. I wonder if the gospel that comes from God, that's based on God's work, that is for God's glory, is unpalatable to you because you've been seduced into valuing something in this life more than you value being right with him. See, these false gospels, they're so seductive. They're so sneaky. They're so subtle. They draw us away constantly. We're not naturally drawn toward the right teaching of the word of God. Maybe this morning it just hasn't been a priority for you to know and understand the message of Jesus. And what I want to say is that you're not going to arrive at the truth just by default, just by accident. There are so many counterfeits, and the pool of the world is so strong and seductive that without a work of the Spirit, you will miss the truth. And folks, if we miss the gospel, if we replace it with a cheap knockoff, we are risking our eternal future and may, may very well be endangering others too. And so what I'm asking you to do, and what I'm going to ask you to do over the next several weeks, is to not assume that you already know everything. Not assume that you already possess all there is to have about the gospel of Jesus Christ, but to say, my conscience, my beliefs are subject to what the word of God says. And I'm willing to be corrected and confronted and convicted by what the Spirit shows me in this book. Don't assume you have comprehensive knowledge of the gospel. Don't assume that Indian Creek could never drift away from it. Let's diligently study this letter together. And let's turn our minds and our imaginations toward that great truth. He gave himself for us, for our sins, to rescue us from this present evil age. Amen. Would you pray with me now? Father, what a weighty, heavy reality God in this moment as your word 
reverberates in this room. I pray that you would protect us from the evil one who would love to just pluck it away. That you would clear away the thorns and the bristles and the briars and the rocks that prevent the seed of the word from growing and going deep into our hearts. Lord, I just want to pray that if there are any in this room who, if they were to die today, are not sure that they would spend eternity with you, I pray that you would arrest their attention and that you would give them the gift of faith. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. If you're here today and you're not sure that you're a believer in Jesus, you're not sure that you